0: Okay, I have a quiz for you. For those of you who like stories, how many people like a story? Okay, so what I'm going to do is this very simple quiz. I'm going to put up the first line of a well-known story, and if you know what the story is, you can. I'll let you shout out, shout out the answer. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of fullness. Who knows what that story is? Two cities. By Dickens. Charles Dickens, Tale of Two Cities. Very good. Here's one that's a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more up-to-date than that. Next one please. Oh, my clicker isn't working. There we go. Far out in the uncharted backwaters, of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy, there's a small unguarded yellow sun. Who knows what that story is? Very good. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Douglas Adams, come on, there's more. You've got to get into this, okay? Okay, we'll have fun in church. That's the point. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan, very good. Come on, you can shout this out. Okay, here's a good one. Here's a good one. I don't believe this necessarily myself, but it's the truth. thought. It's sorry. There, there. Right, can you move this on? For some reason, my clicker isn't working. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and Prejudice, 1813. Okay, there's a big clue in the actual words of the next one. The next one here, uh, in a hole in the ground. Or live the Hobbit. You know that one. Uh, and just for those of you who don't read books and watch films, here's three um, just from movies. Here's this one from a movie. Have a look at this. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Anyone know what that film? Which film that's from? Hello. Which one? No. Good try though. It's from the film Goodfellas. Okay. Two more. This one here. Next one for me. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate. <laughs> At Heathrow Airport. Come on, I know everybody admits they haven't seen this, but who, loves, who likes Love Actually, really? Okay, that's quite good. Okay, and the very last one, a personal favourite. I'm 36 years old, I love my family, I love baseball, and I'm about to become a farmer. But until I heard the voice, I'd never done a crazy thing in my whole life. Thank you. Feel the dreams. If you build it, they will come. And how about this one? Just put this one up for me. Anyone heard this famous first line before? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. You know, a really good opening line really sets a story in motion, doesn't it? Starts a good story off. Why don't you open your Bible and open it to the first page and we're going to read a little bit of the first chapter of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We're going to Genesis chapter 1 this morning and uh, I've got quite a lot of these, so can you move them on for me because I'm not sure this is working. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you guys figure that out. Um, we 're going to read chapter one, we 're going to read verses one to five, and then we 're going to read uh, verses 20. we 're going to jump up to 26 and read 26 to 31. Uh, and i 'm reading for the NIV. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it in your Bible or on your phone or whatever device you have it on. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And then we're jumping ahead to verse 26. And God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, creature that moves on the ground and God said I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it they will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground everything that has the breath of life in it I give every green plant for food and it was so and God saw that all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth and those of you who've got um, handouts, if you're able to just distribute those for me, that would be great. On the handout this morning, are a couple of things there's a, just a summary of uh, this morning's talk but importantly at the bottom there are some questions for reflection and discussion we're not going to get to those today but those are for us to take away if you're in a small group you may want to take that as uh, some material to look at and discuss in your group this week or just on your own time for reflection but also on the back of the handout is a timeline and uh, you, might, you might find that interesting or useful. It's not for everybody. It's got quite a lot of information in it. I put a blog up about timelines a couple of weeks ago and I, when I searched the internet for Bible timelines, there were all kinds of formats and all kinds of possibilities. I got one that was so long it stretched effectively 10, it would be 10 pages if you printed it out. So I put a link, uh, I think I put a link to the website on that, um, on that blog. Anyway, that's just there for uh, anybody who wants to sort of be studying that. If you get bored of what I'm talking about, maybe you can read that in there. But do keep hold of the sheet because there are some questions on there for you for us to take away and to think about this week, uh, whether on our own or in small groups. As you know, uh, we're doing the Year of Biblical Literacy and we're doing that because we want to get better at knowing the Bible by reading it, not simply by grabbing verses, not simply by listening to podcasts or sermons, helpful as they are, but actually by getting into the habit of practicing and developing spending time in the Bible ourselves, reading it and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And uh, just put the next slide up for me. We have created some extraordinarily fantastic bookmarks. Okay? Um, If you remember, Paul was talking about this the other week and he was saying, you know, when you read the Bible, there are three or four questions that you want to ask yourself. And we've, uh, as a team, have taken the trouble of creating these amazing bookmarks so now if you want to you can put this in your bible and it's a reminder as I read this passage what does this passage tell you about God what does it tell you about you what does it tell you about living in a way that pleases God I actually have four here and the first four people who'd like them can come and get them from me come and get them and uh, yeah they're running they're running And I'm about to tell you, I've got two more left. I'm about to tell you that um, the rest are on the back, on the, um, on the connect desk, and they're not, they don't cost anything. So if you'd like to have one, but, but super keen points for the four kinos there. Um, excellent work, good, good stuff. If you're following our reading plan, as Joe said, you should have just come to the end of Leviticus. That's a hardcore book, isn't it? Um, it's usually, I understand, where people who are trying to read the Bible grind to a halt, okay? Um, But if you are finding yourself getting stuck there, I just want to encourage you, stick with it, stick with it, it's worth it. You know, I got to near the end and I accidentally jumped to the last reading and it said, today you will finish Leviticus, and I thought, praise God. Um, So I jumped back, I thought, I'm actually going to jump, I'm going I'm to do the whole thing. I did about four days in one go, because I was like, just got to get to the end of this and move on to the next book. But the videos that are there on the Bible Project really help us understand it and shape it and look at the structure. So, and if you're not following that plan, don't worry. Um, but I would encourage you, do something, read something regularly. Perhaps start with Genesis if you haven't already. Um, there are all sorts of links and information on our website and on our blogs. Um, and so this year uh, as I said we're doing the year of biblical literacy and um, next slide for me please The we oh it's working now, fabulous, oh man, sorry this series that we're beginning now for, the, for this month and for next month is called the big story of God you know one way of studying and interpreting the Bible is something that we call systematic theology now, systematic theology kind of sounds like it says, it takes a theme or a topic and it searches out every verse in the Bible, and then it pieces all those verses together and tries to understand what a biblical theme is and what, it, what the truth is. And it does it systematically and it can be very helpful, and, but it also can be a bit dry. And sometimes it feels like it's missing out on the story. And when we do systematic theology, sometimes we just pick these verses out and we look at the themes, and the themes are important, but we don't actually understand the story, the overarching story of the Bible. And by the the way, I'm using the word story, and by story I'm not implying it's fiction. Okay, I mean the narrative, um, and that's what you've got on your handout, the timeline of the whole narrative. And the definition that we are working with is this one, that the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. And so a better way to go than systematic theology is something we might call biblical theology, where we just, yes, we look to understand the themes, yes, we look to understand God, but we do it within the context of the whole story. And that unified story is what we're looking at through this series Okay, It's our conviction that this book, with its literary styles, various literary styles, its different plots and subplots, actually tells one story that leads to Jesus. So over the next two months, we're going to work through this meta-narrative, this big story of the Bible. And here's an overview of where we're going. It's a bit like a drama. I've used the word act rather than chapter because I didn't want to get confused and because actually it kind of reminds me that it's like a huge drama. So in, in the drama of God the Bible, that the Bible tells, you've got first act, which is creation. You've got the second act, which is the fall of man, which Paul's gonna get to next week. You've got the third act, which is Israel and the covenant with Abraham, which actually, it looks like small on there, but it actually that's pretty much the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? Um, and then you've got Act 4, Jesus in the church and the Holy Spirit. And the bit that, that's the bit that we are living in now. We're still in that story. And then we look ahead to Act 5, right at the end of time, when it comes to the restoration of all things that the, that's talked about in the very end of the book of Revelation. And you know, it's really important to get the whole story because there is a popular view that maybe some of us have grown up with that the Bible actually starts in Genesis 3 and ends in Revelation 20. Okay, the popular view is that the Bible starts with the sin of man and ends with the judgment of God. And that's not true. That's actually an abbreviated or an abridged or maybe a diminished version of the Bible. And it's inaccurate and it's unhelpful. And even if we're not consciously aware of this, I certainly was somebody who was influenced by that as I grew up and the teaching that I was taught. Because basically, if you believe that, then the the teaching that you get from the Bible is that we're all sinners. We're all going to be judged unless we do what the Bible says. And that Jesus' sole purpose was to redeem us so we could go to a better place after we die. And whilst that all is true, it actually doesn't get to the whole story. Redemption salvation, what Jesus did for us, we're going to celebrate it in communion at the end of this morning, is an incredible thing, but it's part of a bigger story. The bigger story of creation and recreation, which we can miss if we're not looking at the whole thing. Jesus doesn't just save us so we go to heaven. Jesus saves us so we can live up to our original design. And so when we look at this whole story of the Bible, we don't start with sin and end with judgment. We start with creation and we end with recreation. A new creation. And that creation, that garden theme, you can, you can track it all the way through the Bible. It's there in the tabernacle, it's there in the temple, it's there in the fig tree, it's there in the cross, it's there in Revelation. It's so much a part of the context. And so we're going to look at the big story of God and we're going to look at, uh, as we've already read, Genesis 1 and 2. And as we think about this this morning, I want us to consider three things about Genesis 1 and 2. Firstly, that this is a different kind of story Secondly, that it answers or seeks to answer a different set of questions. And thirdly, that it invites us into a different way to live. What do I mean by a different kind of story? This story that we've read this morning in Genesis essentially tells of a God who created order out of chaos and said that it was good. Now, we might not think that's a big deal in this day and age. I think most of us probably do think of creation as something good. Maybe we think that humans are, you know, on on balance a pretty good thing. So it doesn't feel like a big deal, but the world that this story was written in was very different and had some very different views. And so to understand this, we need to, to understand the context. We need to get a sense of the alternative creation narratives that were floating about the time that Genesis was written. Um, uh, civilizations such as um, Babylon, which was the neighbor to Israel, tell a very different story. And the best known creation account from Babylon is called the Enuma Elish. And this is a, a description of how the world began according to the worldview of this ancient pagan civilization. There are some similarities with Genesis 1. They both start with watery chaos. But according to the Enuma Elish, the narrative of how the world began starts with the gods at war. And as war rages and there is destruction and there is violence, um, the gods that lose are torn limb from limb, and those body parts go to form different parts of the world. Okay, and there is this god or ruler who wins this battle, and his name is Marduk or Marduk, and he wins the battle of the gods, and he th- he threatens to make the defeated gods, you know, his slaves, but they plead with him not to. And so instead he takes the blood of one of these gods and from that he creates humans to populate the earth, almost as an afterthought and with one sole purpose, to make sure that the gods don't have to do any work. So humans in this narrative are created to be slaves to the gods. And just imagine that you are a king in Babylon. Okay? Kings in the ancient Near East are pretty much thought of as gods anyway. They are treated as gods. It's the same with Pharaoh in Egypt. And so if you're in ancient Babylon, this creation account is read every year aloud. What does this story tell you about your life and about what it means to be human? If you're just a regular citizen in ancient Babylon, it reinforces that life is short, it's hard, it's violent, and it's meaningless. And that basically all you've got to look forward to is being a slave to the gods or a slave to the king. Happy times. (laughs) And yet in Genesis... It's a different story. Yes, it's the same in that there is watery chaos to start with, but this world is created not through war and violence, but through God's word. He speaks and it is. It is ordered and structured. Even you can see in this chart, it's a bit hard to see, but even the way that this story is told, it's told sort of with this beautiful symmetry about it, about how in the first three days, God parts the heavens, parts the earth and the waters, creates land, Um, and see, and then how he populates land and sky sorry and then how he populates each one of those there is symmetry there is even symmetry in the way that this is written out in the hebrew i'm not a hebrew scholar but i'm told that it's considered to be really beautiful the way it's written out almost poetic like an ode or something okay creation the message of this is that, that that creation is good that the sky is good, the land is good, the sun is good, the plants are good, the animals are good, and the crowning beauty of God's creation are human beings, his image bearers, that humanity was equal with each other and made in the image of God. We are presented, humans are presented as the pinnacle of creation and given a royal status to rule over the rest of the world. Now, I've spoken about this before, a few years ago it was, about this idea that one of the words for image in Genesis 1 26 and 27, one of the words that we translate as image is actually the word selem, which means idol. <coughs> Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that potentially this is quite a controversial idea because in other parts of the Old Testament, God makes it very clear, I don't want any worship of idols. No worshipping of idols is to take place. There are no other gods except me. So why is it that the writer of Genesis describes humans as idols? Well, I could do a whole lecture on this, but I'm not going to, thankfully for you. Um, but kings in the ancient Near East were believed to have been the image of their gods. They were believed to have been a real, live representative of their god on the earth. And so therefore, um, therefore subject to receive worship as a god. Okay, This would have been the same in Egypt for Pharaoh. It would have been the same in all these ancient civilizations. And so those kings, in turn, created statues or images or idols of themselves. Here's one that was uh, recovered uh, a few years ago, but is thought to be of the rule of a Syrian ruler in na- the 9th century. Okay, and um, here's a, a picture of what is described in Daniel 3 when Kim Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of himself and expects all of the people to bow down to it as idols. These statues or the, these idols, it's not just a statue; it's ascribed godlike status and power, and everyone is expected to worship as if it was the god, which they thought it was. So for example, when you attack a neighbouring country and you want to sort of capture them, the first thing you do is you capture their idols and you take them away because they're thought to be where the the God's power um, sort of stays. And even in 1 Samuel 5, there's a story you can read about how when the the, the Israelites catch uh, an idol of Dagon, this foreign god, and they put it overnight in the same room as the Ark of the Covenant, uh, they come in the next morning and... Uh, the, the 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 statue is fallen and smashed, and uh, suggesting that god 's power is greater so that 's the context. Why would human beings describe be described in genesis 1.26 as being like god's idols, and the sense is that god didn't want any other representative of himself he didn't want any idols or any likeness of himself on earth, unlike all these other kind of kings and gods around. Because he's already created one. And God's image, God's idol, are the human beings that he created, that he talks about in Genesis 1.26. That's you and me. That's humanity. Actually, if you think about that, I may have kind of glossed over that quite quickly, but if you think about the, the significance of that, it's incredible that we are created to be God's living, royal representatives here on the earth that he doesn't need any other representatives other than us. And so humans are not created as slaves to the gods. We are partners with him and we are representatives of him and we're created by him to continue his beauty and his plan for the world. And in my blog this week, I'll put up a... a, In fact, you can look at it If if you want to make a note. If you look on the Bible Project and you look for the image of God, there's a whole video that just kind of explains that stuff. I don't think Genesis just tells a different kind of ancient story, though. I think Genesis also tells a different kind of modern story because, you know, that's kind of back then. But what about now? Most modern accounts of how we got here will derive from some sort of humanist or evolutionary narrative. And science, science seems fairly clear to me that complex organisms seem to have evolved from simple ones through some sort of process of selection. I mean, that's, the Bible doesn't dispute that. But Genesis does challenge the worldview that we just happen to be here by accident. Okay, I don't believe that you can claim that everything we see in nature, the order, the structure, and the beauty of even the tiniest living organism, the order and the structure, the beauty that we see even just in the eyes of one, in one another's eyes, I don't believe we can claim that that happened by accident, and that's what Genesis is saying. So here's a guy called Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project, and he is quoted as saying this, I can't imagine how nature, in the case of the universe, could have created itself. The very fact that the universe had a beginning at all implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. Another name for this argument is the first cause argument. You know, and I'm no scientist, I can't tell you how how it happened exactly, but logic suggests, and Genesis argues, that there must have been someone who started it. And if you think that there is no God, if you think that we are here by some glorious accident of evolution, then logically, the only place to go then is something we call nihilism. There's a guy called Dr. John Dixon who says this, an evolutionary worldview may not lead to the superstition, as it did with the Enuma release for example, but it will lead, in this day and age, to relativism. Because if you believe that we just got here by chance, then there are no absolute values. Only the values you decide to assign to things. And that will also lead, if you follow its logic through, to nihilism, which is a loss of absolute meaning, because there's no inherent significance to the accidental organisms of the world. There's only the significance we choose to attach to them. And so in an ancient worldview, we are the afterthought here simply to serve the gods. And in a modern worldview, we are an accident here simply to do what we wish or what will serve ourselves. And whichever way you look at it, I really believe that the Bible tells us a different kind of story. And that's what Genesis is saying. I'm telling you a different story. And that leads us on to the next point, which is that Genesis 1 and 2 is not just telling us a different story, it's answering a different set of questions. You see, I grew up in a church and one of the debates that seemed to have raged around when I was growing up was the whole creation versus evolution debate. I mean, I heard talks about how this must be right and that must be wrong and God must have created the world literally in seven days. And I realized as I grew that science has got quite a lot to say about this and that to ignore what science is saying seems like pretty foolish to me. And actually, I think what's happened is that the church historically has managed to position science against the Bible in a way that the Bible's not really trying to do. And I think it's really unhelpful. Genesis 1 and 2 is not a science book, and it is not trying to answer the question, how did God make the world? It's not trying to do that. The book of Genesis is telling us that God made the world it 's not telling us how God made the world it 's not saying that god creates it 's saying that God created it it 's saying that He created us in his image he 's saying that He left us with a vocation and a calling and a purpose and this is really important because if you come to Genesis with a different set of questions than the Bible is trying to answer then you 're in danger of distorting what it 's actually trying to do what it 's actually trying to say here 's another slide by another expert called John Walton he says if we Try to turn to Genesis 1 into an explanation of modern cosmology. We are making the text say something it never said. It's not just a case of adding meaning, it's a case of changing meaning. And since we view the text as authoritative, it's a dangerous thing to change the meaning of the text into something it never intended to say. And I've heard that sort of creation-evolution thing, that whole debate sort of slightly gets sidelined. It's not gone away, but it's slightly got sidelined as we've begun to understand that you know, the Bible isn't trying to answer that scientific question. You know, when you try and make a text answer questions it's not trying to answer, eventually we're going to stop listening. It's just just to, to, to illustrate this point, imagine that Joe jo and I are having a discussion, a robust discussion, and I, say, I go to Joe and she says something like this. She says, oh, I'm just going to see such and such today. I'm going to be home a bit late. And before she can say any more, I jump in and I say, oh, why are you going to go see them? And she goes, well, uh, and I say, well, is that a really good idea? Have you really got time for that? And I say, is that, a really, is that really a priority? I mean, are those guys even nice? I mean, last time I spoke to them, they were horrible. And don't you just need to like, take some time and pray more? And Why don't you go on a different day? And eventually, this never happens, by the way, I'm just, you know, <laughs> making this up. Eventually, Joe will look at me and say, why don't you just stop talking and listen to what I'm saying? And I will say something like, And she will then say, all I'm asking is, I'm going to be home late. Can you pick the kids up and sort out the dinner? And I go, oh yeah, okay, I can do that. Because I'm missing the point. Because you're not trying to answer the questions that I'm asking. And there's a problem there, isn't there? You see, Genesis says there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And for centuries, people have said, what does that mean? Is that a 24-hour day? Is that a literal day? Does day mean day? And if if day doesn't mean day, then can I trust anything the Bible means? And that's, you know, that's a good question. I'm a scientist. Honestly, I'm I'm not a scientist. It's not my area of expertise. But I fairly quickly realized that whilst I couldn't explain exactly how the world that I live in came to be, I do trust that if God is who he says he was, then he could have brought it about any time, any place, over any time scale. I mean, if God is God, why would he need six days? He could just click his fingers and that would happen. So this isn't trying to tell me about how it happened. This is trying to tell me about the nature of who God is and who I am, okay? It's a poem. It's talking about nature. It's talking about what we're here for. And this guy, who's another really intelligent, super brain theology guy called Christopher Wright, says this, the creation narrative provides answers for the two most fundamental questions that all philosophies and religions answer in different ways, which are, where are we and who are we? That is to say, First, what is this universe in which we find ourselves and where did it come from and why does it exist and is it even real? And second, what does it mean to be human? Are we gods or merely animals that have evolved a bit further than the rest? Does human life have any value, meaning, and purpose? I'm sorry if this is all getting a bit heavy. I'm not trying to be heavy or academic. I did try and look for some songs that would illustrate this. I got as far as "Are We Human or Are We Dancers?" and um, I, look, I looked at the words. I, I looked at the words, and it was a quite interesting side trail. But I decided it wasn't really helpful for us in this. And then I, just, and then I, then I googled like you know 40 songs that have the word "human" in the title. And, and I was thinking, what does it mean when we say "Are we just you know oh, I'm, I'm only human?" There's like another song, isn't there, by? Um, The guy with all the tattoos, can't remember his name. I'm only human after all. Okay, when we say I'm only human, it's kind of implying some weakness. But actually, God has said, no, the nature of being human is that you are created to represent me. We've got our definition of what it is to be human slightly skewed there, I think. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 says God created the world from chaos out of darkness, he created the world, and the world that God created is good. It's very good, and it's full of meaning, and it's full of potential, and it's full of beauty. And he brings all of this out of a dark, formless chaos, and he orders the world. And what does it look like in the first place? It looks like a garden. But importantly, in this story that we read in Genesis, as you go on to read through, it's, we're also told that there is still some chaos In this world, and there is not, and there's still some darkness, even though it's in God's good world. We're not really told how, but the chaos and the darkness is ordered, and we're told that God wants to keep bringing order and beauty in His good world. He wants it to keep going, and how is He going to do that? He's going to do that through us, humanity. He says, "I will make people in my own image, and I will task them with continuing the work of creating and ordering the word world." He uses the word rule to describe this task. Who rules the world? God rules the world. Who rules the world in place of God? We do. Humanity does. That's what we're supposed to do. And this is where humanity comes in. God places Adam and Eve in a garden in Genesis 2 and tells them to rule as image bearers, to work in and enjoy the garden and enjoy God's presence there and make babies and bring about goodness in the world that God created. We're meant to be partners, we're not meant to be slaves, we're partners in this, and that's our vocation. We're about ordering and structuring and creating the beauty. Do you ever find yourself thinking, I am living amongst chaos and dark forces? <laughs> if you just came to our house this morning, you'd think that. I mean, and, and never mind- gar- I mean, how many of you are gardeners? How many how many of you could describe chaos and dark forces as your as your garden project? <laughs> you know? We are we are scattered servants and we are called to represent God, as Jo was just talking about it, you know, earlier when she's talking about the whole, you know, hey, are you getting the nudge from God? That's what this is about. That's a practical working of what this is teaching. We are called to represent God in our homes and our workspaces, in our communities. And in those contexts, we are continue to continue the work of ordering and structuring and creating and celebrating beauty. Bringing order out of chaos. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. That's our role. Holistically, whether physically or spiritually or emotionally or mentally, this applies to any job you tell me that you have, I could tell you that you are creating order from chaos. That's what you're aiming to do. If you're a doctor, if you're in healthcare, if you're in youth work, if you're in administration, if you're in education, if you're in industry or management or caring or parenting, Even church leadership. Order out of chaos. It's a hard job sometimes. (laughs) I used to do this when I was a teacher. I used to do this when I was a music composer. You're bringing order out of chaos. That's what it is to be human. That's what it is to be made in God's image. That's what the Bible says is our job, to rule the world on God's behalf. And then you get to what happens in Genesis 2 and i have printed these words up for you just because i'm kind but in genesis 2:15 to 17 it says this the lord took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and take care of it and the lord god commanded the man you are free to eat from the tree from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it you will certainly die And the implications of this bring us to our third point this morning. So I've already said that the Genesis is trying to tell a different story. It's trying to answer some different questions. And lastly, it's inviting us into a different way of life. Why does God place a forbidden tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden? There's been much debate about this. But in the narrative, it's fairly straightforward. The tree is there to present us with a fundamental question about our life. And the question is this, how will you rule the earth? How will you do the creation work? How will you order and structure? How will we, humanity, bring about this beauty and goodness? There are two options and we have a choice. Option one, will we trust and submit ourselves to God's knowledge of good and evil? Will we live under the limitations of being human and not, not God, not God-like, but will we live under the limitations that God has placed on us because it's the best thing for us. Will we trust him, option one? Or option two, will we choose autonomy? Will we choose to do this our way and hijack his definition of good and evil for ourselves? Will we effectively say, God, I don't trust your definition of good. I want you to leave that up to me for now. And that's the fundamental question that God leaves us with, in Genesis 2. And that's a major narrative plot point. That's the end of Act One of the Story of God. If we were an East Enders, this would be the point at which you went do. Doo, 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 Find out next week to see what happens. You like that? Do you want to do that again? Do do doo I've missed my vocation in life. I should have been a I should have what do you call them people? Beatboxer, yeah. But anyway, um, we have a choice. Humanity has a choice. Mankind has a choice. You and I have a choice, okay? And you know what happens in the story, but I'm not getting there. Paul's looking at that next week. Let's just focus on that for a minute. This isn't just a historic past tense choice question. It's actually a question for us now, today. I still believe that this creation narrative is inviting us into a different way of living, a way of trust. And the question is, do we trust God or will we trust God for the way that he has ordered and structured our world? Do we trust his ability to give us what we need? Maybe not always what we want, but what we need. Do we trust his definition of humanity, of what it is to be human, of partnering with God, of ruling over his creation, Christopher Wright, that guy I quoted before, says this. He says, we will stand before our God for our humanity as much as for our Christianity. We will stand before God, every one of us, at some point, and we will give account of how we've been human. He will ask us the question, have you done what I created you to do? He's asking us the question now. Will you do what I've created you to do? Will you partner with me in caring for this earth to bring about creative beauty and goodness? Or will you choose alternatively to do it your own way and therefore probably realistically destroy it with your rage and your jealousy and your anger and your selfishness and your pride and your greed and your lust and your violence? Will you keep destroying the world or will you partner with me? That's the question for us today. Will we trust God? I know what my choice is. I don't always live up to it, but I know what my choice is. Because I've tried doing it the other way, and it just doesn't work. But God gives us free will. We're not robots. I can't make my children worship me. I can't make them like me. I can't make them bow down to me. They've got to choose whether they want to spend time with me, whether they want to come towards me or not. Want to, they've got, I can go towards them in relationship. They have to choose whether they want to reciprocate. And it's the same with us and God. He does want to be known. He is communicating. He's not hiding Okay, He does offer life and meaning and purpose. And the question is, how are we going to respond to that? Are we living out our story? Are we living out the story that he's created us for? What's he calling each of us to? What roles do you play? These are some of the questions that I've put on the bottom of your sheet that you can take away and consider. But what is he calling you to? And what do you do? What do you do in your nine to five? How are you ordering and structuring and celebrating life and creating beauty in our, in our relationships. Are, are our relationships beautiful? Are they celebrating beauty? Are we creating order and structure in our relationships? In our relationships, we should be communicating better. In our relationships, we should be preferring and loving one another. That's, that's God's way. So are we doing that? Are we living up to what he's created us to be? In our work choices, in our career choices, are we preferring others? Are we doing good? Are we making the world around us a better place? I remember, you you know, I really blame, Paul Phillips isn't here, so I can blame him. I blame him. He said one time from the front, he said something like this, I just know that as Christians we're supposed to leave every place better than when we found it. And that means if I see litter on the floor, I have to pick it up. No matter what it is or where it is. And I can buy that in the church because I kind of own this space. But when I'm out in the world, what? That means I have to go pick up the litter all the time. What if it's dirty? And I always think of Paul Phillips. When I pray. God bless you, Paul. <laughs> you know, trying to leave the place better than when I... I mean, it's a, sometimes it's just as simple as that, isn't it? It's a choice in our hearts. What about in our homes and families? What about in our churches and our ministry responsibilities? Imagine if we got up and the first thought every day was, I am made in the image of God to bring order from chaos and structure his world and celebrate life and create beauty. Is that what you think about when you look in the mirror in the morning? I'm a parent helping my children grow up in this crazy world. Or I'm a son or a daughter helping my parents cope with the aging process. Or I'm a friend just trying to support the people around me. Or I'm a manager, a team leader at work, I'm helping staff cope with the pressures that are under them. Or I'm a team member and I'm just trying to carry out my duties faithfully and responsibility. What are we called to do and do we know that God is in it with us? And just because we mess up, which we do, are we okay with that? And we'll get to Jesus later, but In in one sentence, what happens when we mess up is that we find out there's a gap between where we are called to be and where we are. And Jesus comes and fills the gap. And we're going to celebrate communion in just a minute. We're going to remember what Jesus did because he was the example, the, the great example for us to follow. Jesus is the one who came to show us what it is to be fully human and yet a representative of God, the image of God. And because he died for us, we get the opportunity to get right with him. And let me just, as we go into communion, read you one passage from Hebrews. It says, in the past, this is Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided for purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We've sung about how beautiful Jesus is today. And here we are talking about our role in creation. And okay, we'll get to the next bits of the story, but the fact that we mess up is okay because Jesus has come to show us what it should look like and help us figure out how to be there again. Why don't you stand with me? And those of you who are coming to um, lead communion, why don't you come? And let's have the worship guys back as well if you've got a minute. Thank you.